Good evening, everybody. I'm Felicity Baker, and I'm one of the researchers at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, just around the corner. And it's really my pleasure to welcome you this evening to what I hope will be a really nice uh, discussion around uh, music and its role in recovery. I'd like to first introduce uh, my esteemed colleagues. Uh, we have Dr... Oh, I just had a blank. <laughs> it's a good start. I, Dr Samantha Diekman, who is from the, center, the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions and she's a postdoctoral researcher there. And on my right I have James Richmond, who is a former percussionist from the MSO, now clinical psychologist and also doctoral researcher here at the University of Melbourne. So you're in for a treat. Uh, so I'm just going to start this evening's proceedings by just telling you a little bit about trauma and why music might be useful for addressing trauma. So uh, psychological trauma is a type of damage to the mind that occurs as a result of experiencing a really distressing event. Trauma is often the result of an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds one's ability to cope or integrate the emotions involved with that particular experience. So if we think about um, trauma, it is an exposure or repeated exposure to an actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence, either experienced directly or witnessing it, for example, uh, witnessing it happening to a friend or a family member. And you can see from the slide there that there are lots of um, potential causes for, for uh, trauma. We have things like experiencing natural disasters, which we seem to be having a lot of in this country in the last years, workplace or other serious accidents, war, displacement, childhood abuse, also very topical at the moment, and uh, domestic violence. And some of the major symptoms um, around trauma are things like re-experiencing the event through things like nightmares. Uh, it'll be um, flashbacks, panic attacks. Depression is a particularly significant um, uh, symptom. Uh, disorientation, hypervigilance, and the list goes on. And um, thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder in particular, we know that uh, when we experience trauma, it actually physiologically changes our brain. So it's not just a matter of it um, affecting our brain, it actually physiologically changes it. And if it does that, then you can imagine that it's actually a really difficult thing to treat. So here are some of the areas of the brain where trauma affects the brain. And uh, for those, again, who have experienced trauma, we know that they're likely to experience really challenging problems. For example, people who have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder are 15 times more likely to commit suicide than the general public, similar for other things like um, substance abuse. Now, we know that there are some interventions that specifically target post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly a technique called cognitive behavioural therapy, but we also know from research that this is only effective in treating about one-third of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. About one-third of other um, people who've received the therapy experience some relief from the symptoms. But there's also another one-third who don't receive any benefit from the therapy at all. And this, this means that um, we have an opportunity uh, as uh, people working with music to really address an area uh, where of, of a group of people that are really hard to treat. So why might we use music? Well, there are several reasons why it might be useful. We know that it arouses emotions and provides possibilities for processing these emotions. So using music to stimulate the recovery journey. It activates the pleasure networks in our brain, as they say, sex, drugs and rock and roll. We know that this pleasure system helps people to cope with the challenging periods in their life. People's musical identity can be a resource that they can draw on when they've experienced trauma. So a familiar pre-trauma identity can be reawakened through their musical experiences. Songs are also mediums to tell stories. For example, stories of their trauma, stories of their survival. 
And we know that telling stories are also an important part of the healing process. And research on music has established that social, emotional, psychological and developmental benefits occur from music participation. For example, um, a review by Susan Hallam says that music engagement improves child literacy, numeracy, linguistic ability, creativity, general attainment and social and personal development. Musical engagement affects uh, adults' immune function and therefore also addresses stress. It improves mood, energy, attention, concentration, memory, self-esteem and well-being. And mood and music boosts uh, good health, quality of life and mental well-being. So from a clinical perspective, which James and I are going to share with you today, we suggest that music has the potential to address symptoms of PTSD by reducing the incidence of anxiety and mood disorders, encouraging expression of traumatic events, improving quality of life, building self-esteem, enhancing emotional self-efficacy, promoting reconsolidation of memories, reconstructing a healthy sense of self and supporting social and emotional and behavioural well-being. So I'm now going to hand over to James, who's going to talk to us about his work with uh, Returned Soldiers. Thanks, Felicity. So we've seen some of the debilitating effects of PTSD. And the problem is that only half people who suffer from the disorder will ever seek treatment. For example, in the military, um, uh, the, you know, there's still a stigma associated with mental illness. And while that is slowly changing, many soldiers simply won't identify it. Thanks, Felicity. So we've seen some of the debilitating effects of PTSD. And the problem is that only half people who suffer from the disorder will ever seek treatment. For example, in the military, um, who do seek treatment won't experience full recovery. That means that most people suffering from PTSD are doing it tough and going it alone. So we need to find new ways to help more people, um, attract more people toward help seeking. And we need better ways to address more of their needs. Well, how can we do this? Well, the Australian Centre for Post-Traumatic Health recently recommended that optimal psychosocial functioning, I quote, is as important, if not more so, than symptom reduction, end quote. And what they mean by optimal psychosocial functioning is broader wellbeing, daily functioning and quality of life. And these priorities are reflected in the veteran mental health strategy, which articulates similar priorities, um, including wellbeing, uh, building a sense of personal empowerment, um, building social networks and building resilience. Now, each of these factors is important and worthy of, of discussion, but in the interests of time tonight, I'll just unpack resilience because time and again in the trauma study literature, resilience pops up as a, a key contributor to um, positive coping following trauma. Resilience is a multidimensional construct uh, and there's no agreed upon definition but researchers tend to agree on the main components that, that make up resilience. Mm -hmm. Things like cognitive flexibility, positive emotions, physical fitness, having a sense of meaning, social connections, pro-social behaviour, uh, group identity and locus of control. Now, locus of control is kind of jargon in the psychological field for basically feeling like you're in the driver's seat, whether that's in the activity that you're doing at the moment or kind of more generally in life, kind of feeling like you're, you're in control. So how can we attract more people with PTSD toward help seeking and improve their symptoms while strategically targeting these broader psychosocial needs? Well, we've seen that music yields a range of benefits and many of these could address these needs. But in Australia, very few adults engage in active music participation. 
And this may be in part due to perceived barriers. For example, it might be seen as too difficult to start, you know, later in life. Uh, instruments could be seen as expensive. Um, the idea of learning to read music could be seen as very difficult, particularly if you haven't had any musical experience before. And maybe even the idea of playing music is just not compatible with traditional ideas of, of masculinity or even adulthood. You know, maybe some people think that playing music is a thing that children do in school. But drumming, for example, is an appealing, engaging activity, musical activity, that, that might reduce some of these barriers. It's, it's accessible, appealing, it's relatively easy, uh, and the instruments are relatively inexpensive. It's an activity that transcends age and cultural barriers, and it's really relatively easy to get started. You can make a sound from day one. And it may even appeal to people who might otherwise have seen themselves as non-musical. And there are some promising lines of evidence that point to broader benefits associated with drumming. But unfortunately, the empirical research is limited. For example, there's no empirical research on drumming for PTSD. There's no empirical research on drumming with veterans. And there's very limited research on resilience in this area. So, you know, while it, it, it seems promising, we really need some hard science. So at the Clinical and Music Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Melbourne, we partnered with the charitable foundation Rewire with the Ivanhoe RSL and Austin Health to set up a pilot study and now an ongoing program of research to evaluate the effects of a structured group drumming program on psychosocial functioning and well-being of veterans and civilians with a history of post-traumatic stress disorder. Here's an example of some of the work. So that's just a small example of the program in action. We use a diverse range of percussion instruments. The program features cyclical self-cueing patterns. We use hierarchical rhythmic structures that balance the complexity of particular rhythms with the ability of the participant. We use graphical notation to reduce cognitive load and to assist participants to make music from day one. Um, there's cooperative, creative activities, composition woven into the program to further consolidate the learning and to stimulate that ongoing engagement. The secondary aims of the research are also to demonstrate that such a program can become self-sustaining so that the that group members could continue to run their own group and thereby reap the, the benefits and the mental and physical health benefits of doing this program for over a much longer term. And we also aim to identify mechanisms for targeted clinical in interventions so that we can actually use something like this program to really work with people experiencing acute PTSD. The program um, first started 18 months ago and our pilot study was, um, uh, has been you know, a wonderful experience. Some of the outcomes that the members report, ongoing engagement, um, improved mood. In fact, these members uh, have done several public performances now and have even recorded a CD, which, is, which you're hearing a little bit of. Um, so the engagement is, is strong. We drum every week. Um, the members report improved concentration, well-being, mood, uh, improved self-esteem, and reduced stress. Um, so the larger study is continuing currently, and um, 
and and obviously the first group now has, has the ranks have swelled slightly as uh, people who've completed some of the new research program wanted to keep on drumming so so the group is growing um, so it's uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, and we're gathering some really exciting data thank you james and i had the pleasure last friday of being at the repatriation hospital out in heidelberg and listening to the Kokoda drummers for myself. And it was extremely moving. And I know James has got some, some CDs here if anyone is interested in, in uh, purchasing it. The, if, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but the money goes back to continue the program. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're not selling them, but we're just asking for donations. For donations, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my research project together with my team who I have um, listed here on this slide. And I would like to um, thank the Australia Research Council for funding this piece of research. It is still ongoing, but I do have some things I'd like to share with you. So this particular uh, study is working with people who have got acquired brain injury and or spinal cord injury. And the idea is that they use a songwriting experiences to help them uh, establish a, a new healthy identity. So I just want you to take a minute to think about what it might be like for you if, if on your way home from this presentation this evening you were involved in some kind of accident and you found uh, yourself in hospital and then once the immediate health threats were over you discovered that you could no longer walk. I want you to just think about that for a minute and think about the kind of crisis that you might be in that's exactly the kind of crisis that people in our study experience on a daily basis. And so our particular study aimed to see if we could use the songwriting process to help these people, um, in a sense, um, tackle this identity crisis. So these people, they may look in the mirror and they see the physical impairments that they've sustained. There is a danger that this disabled self will be the lens through which all life is viewed and framed and that they forget that there are other aspects of their pre-injured self that are unchanged and are still an important part of their identity. Therefore, identity is an important aspect of their recovery from trauma as the person needs to integrate these traumatic experiences into his or her new sense of self. And the process is not an easy process. So if, if I talk you through this slide a little bit, what happens is uh, when a person experiences this kind of fragmented self-concept or what might be in layman's terms called identity, then they confront this, uh, this reality of I, have, I can no longer walk, etc. And then, of course, the, their immediate first reaction is to retreat, is to avoid it. Sometimes they deny it. And it takes a cyclical process of rethinking and re-looking at themselves before we come out on the other side as having a more healthy, integrated self-concept. So that they start to then experience meaning and satisfaction with and quality of life. So um, my colleagues and I, we developed this songwriting intervention that guides people through the creation of three personally written songs. First, they write a song about their past self. Who was I before our accident? And we talk them through all the aspects of who they were before their accident and they shape lyrics and write music to go with that. Then they write a second song about who am I now, my present self. And this is really um, often the point where they really struggle to come to terms with what's happened. And then they write a third song about an imagined future self. Who am I going to be in the future as someone who now has a permanent disability? And the idea is that they get to explore aspects of themselves that they may have forgotten about because they've been focusing on their physical recovery. And this process allows them to grieve about what they have lost, but also celebrate and bring into sharp focus the things that still remain. This is the really the key part, is to really get them to think about what is still good and that they still have. And so by creating these songs, they're able to tell their stories and then create the music to really reflect the complexity of these self-reflections because they are really are complex. So I'd like to share with you 
just a little bit of one of the songs that one of our participants wrote. I can't play it all because we won't have time, but I did want to give you a bit of a sense of what it might be like or what, what these songs might sound like. And they are all very different and we have over 100 of them now. And this particular song uh, was written by someone with an acquired brain injury and it's the second song that he wrote. So it's the song about who am I now today as someone in this hospital. And you'll see from the, the lyrics, the first verse talks a little bit about um, feeling bad about letting people down, that his injuries caused him to be in hospital and he's let people down. And he wonders if he'll ever be able to feed himself again. So he's, he obviously has no ability, physical ability to feed himself. And then we go to the chorus. And this is what I think is really powerful. Look at, looking at myself through strangers' eyes. Remember that slide I showed you before with the girl looking in the mirror? The person looking back at me I barely recognise. A fog has descended over my mind and that experience of having a brain injury is sometimes like being in a fog. So this is a really expressive uh, lyric. Personality dull, words hard to find. So I'm going to play you a little bit. But now that I've talked you through some of the lyrics, I want you to really think about the music because the music really expresses this sense of being in a fog. So you'll hear that the accompaniment is really um, vague and imprecise and, and the vocal line uh, has a lot of reverb put into it. So it, gives, it creates a sense of distance and a, a sense of a lack of direction. The vocals are really set back in the mix. great song. It's really powerful and really moving. So now I just want to tell you a little bit about this study and, and what it's all about. So our main, our main aim is to really test the impact of this three-song intervention on changing the self-concept or identity and also looking at psychological adjustment. And our secondary aims are to, to, to construct and test a theory about the mechanisms of change. What is it about songwriting that has this powerful effect? And we also are looking at the factors associated with treatment efficacy. So, for example, do females experience it differently to males? Does it matter? Does it depend on what your age is? Um, about the timing of the intervention. So we're also exploring these sort of secondary aims. And now uh, our study is two-phased and we have completed the first phase and we are well into our second phase. So our first phase is a non-randomised trial where um, we have uh, participants with acquired brain injury and participants with spinal cord injury who are inpatients in hospital. Uh, and we have obviously the um, intervention group is those that have the songwriting and we also have those who just have standard care. So they have all their other therapies but just don't have the songwriting therapy. 
And then in our second phase, um, we you can see there from that second table that we have a lot more categories of participants. And so what we're trying to do is to tease out, does it matter when we introduce this intervention? Is it best for it to be introduced whilst they're still in hospital? Or is it better to wait till they're between um, one and 12 months post discharge or even up to two years post-discharge. So this is a, these are really important questions about when's the best time, not just is it a good intervention. And, um, and from, our, um, from the first phase, we published these studies, uh, this study in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. And it's probably a little bit small to see, but I can, I can guide you through the slide that um, so on the left, in the left-hand column, we've got all the different measures that we used, and the top three that have got the green square around it are, um, the, are the measures that we had a significant effect for. Uh, so we had it for the self-concept or the identity, which is the key one that we were interested in, but also uh, we had a significant effect on negative affect and depression and I found, and in fact, the depression, the changes in depression were even larger than the changes in their identity. And this is actually really exciting for me as a music therapist because I see this trend across the research in music therapy, not just in people with acquired brain injury, but in other um, clinical areas as well. So this is kind of confirming that really music therapy does have this impact on depression. Uh, and, but, but even for those other ones that don't have the green box around it, they, um, they were all moving in the right direction. It's just that they, the, the changes weren't uh, large enough to create a significant effect with such a small sample. Uh, and just to give you a sense, um, just one more piece of data. Um, so this is a subscale from the identity or the self-concept scale on physical identity. And um, I mentioned before that they get that these people can get quite preoccupied with their physical self. And so this particular um, uh, graph, the one listed A, uh, shows, um, just to explain it, the blue line is the, um, the change in, in sense of physical self for those who experience the songwriting uh, process and the green line are those who just had standard care. And you can see that actually... At the very beginning, the, the uh, people who were just having standard care were already doing better to start with. Uh, their, their scores were higher. And both the um, experimental group and our control group increased initially, for, um, but then um, the control group decreased substantially. In fact, we're below their starting point. So at the end of the, the time period, their sense of their physical self was actually worse than it was at the beginning, whereas the people who had experienced the songwriting had a significant change. So this was exciting for us. So I just wanted to, to finish uh, by... Uh, you don't have to read this because I'll read it for you. Uh, by reading uh, a, an unsolicited email that came from one of our participants who wrote to his music therapist, who's our, one of our postdoctoral researchers uh, at the conservatorium, uh, Claire, Dr Claire Lee. She's not here tonight, I don't think. Um, and, and this particular uh, participant wrote to, to Claire to share his experience. And I wanted to share it because sometimes the hard data, the quantitative data, doesn't really give us the full picture. And so I treasure these little moments of unsolicited feedback that we get. So I'm going to read it to you. And I should note that the, um, the last line that I've got in red was actually this particular participant's emphasis. He emphasised this himself. So he says, My therapist proved to be very patient and helpful through our six-week course. Rather than feeling downhearted and depressed about my situation, I learned to appreciate what positives still exist in my life and how much the people around me cared. That's exactly what we were aiming for. I have now returned to work full time. I've always ridden a motorcycle and find myself singing my songs in my head while riding to and from work five or six times a week. I have sung my favorite one about half a dozen times in public. These performances are not like singing a normal song. They actually feel like they comfort me and not necessarily to entertain the people listening. I was a very reluctant participant. I insisted I did not have a brain injury. The difference that music therapy has made in my recovery is incomparable to any of my other treatments and is extremely hard to explain in writing 
But when I am going through a moment in my life when I might be feeling a bit down or just not 100%, I fire up my self-written life story in my head and everything seems worthwhile again. I'm very privileged to have been selected to partake in this study and would highly recommend a therapy to everybody on this planet. (laughs) Brain injury or not. It helped me relate, remember and recover. So um, so I've just shared, James has shared with you some clinical work with uh, people in a group. I've shared some work, clinical work with individuals and I'm now going to pass on to, to Sam who's going to really talk you through something completely different. She's taking us to a non-clinical context. Right, thank you Felicity. So as we've just heard, music is a really powerful way that you can um, use as a vehicle in a process of sense making. So it's a vehicle where you can re-establish your sense of self and reconcile your life narrative, as we've just heard, after something extremely disruptive and really unwanted happening in your life. And the context that I'm looking at today is forced migration. And this is a similarly significant and involuntary upheaval in people's lives. And uh, there's some resonances between what I'm going to be talking about and James's work as well because he was um, drawing our attention to the psychosocial aspects of trauma and this move away from symptom reduction for PTSD. And so there's some parallels there with what I'm looking at as well because although we know that the clinical, biomedical and psychological paradigm of trauma is powerful and it's something that's really helpful for a lot of patients and practitioners. We also know that for people who have been through war and forced migration, there are a number of them for whom this model is not something that engages them because they're also interested in social, cultural and structural domains of their lives that have been uh, disrupted by what they've gone through. And so... Peter Westerby has done a lot of work in this area and he talks about the sociality of refugee healing and um, groups as culturally and linguistically diverse as Tibetan, Vietnamese, Bosnian, Somali, Iranian, Sudanese groups have all um, talked about how for them healing from their experiences of forced migration, war and indeed the stresses of resettling in a new society requires an approach that recognises and respects culture addresses the social and cultural change that they've undergone, restores harmony within the community and empowers social and political action. So as we can see, culture, community and power are central to this holistic uh, social approach to healing. And in the brief time that we've got left, we're going to consider how the scope of the disruption experienced in forced migration impacts upon these particular domains and the ways that engaging with others musically addresses these core components of healing. And I'm not talking about anything um, that I have uh, implemented as a researcher, but in fact the ways that music uh, is already used by people in the choices that they make in their musical lives. So culture is significant because disorientation can often arise in this domain. So when you're displaced, and especially when you're forcibly displaced, those broader cultural norms that uh, were a framework for your life no longer can serve as a stable reference point for how you are expected to behave and how you might expect others to uh, act towards you. And uh, some examples of some common things that emerge in this area are, for instance, shifting gender roles or intergenerational relations that change. Um, And music provides an instrument not just for remembering, recognising and respecting culture, but also in this uh, context of not knowing what the position of your culture is in your life, for actually practising its maintenance. So some of you might be familiar with the Melbourneian South Sudanese singer Ajak Kwai, and uh, she released an album called Of Cows, Women and War, and that in touring that, she actually went to Rome, Adelaide. And we're going to watch a short snippet of it now. And as it's playing, I'll ask you to have a quick read, if you can, of the quote on the right in which she describes the reason for this album.
Right, so here, Ajak identifies three different audiences who she wants to engage through this album. So she talks about her own community, and uh, by that she meant the South Sudanese Dinka community, who are already familiar with the tradition that she is reenacting here, which is a type of shepherd song called War. And she wants to edify them through this upholding of their traditions. She also talks about the Australian society and those who share her new home and how she wants to express and share her culture with them. And then she also talks about the young people in her community who may have been born here or may have migrated so young that they don't remember and wanting to pass these traditions on to them. But addressing social and cultural change goes beyond this sort of top-down elders to youth enculturation of tradition. And in fact, in this particular South Sudanese community, um, except in New South Wales, I've witnessed the use of music in intergenerational relations going both ways. So hip hop is a type of music that actually provides some debate in the community and that's across the diaspora, including in the home country itself. Um, but yet in the video that we're gonna see in the next slide, uh, there's people of all ages cheering on a group of young boys uh, who through their songs hope to promote unity across different language groups. And the quote on the right, just to clarify, is from a different hip-hop artist named Abaka, um, and his stage name is Master One. And he addresses both the contention around hip-hop in his community and the way that he uses it as an intergenerational bridge. So we'll just play that now. Unfortunately, I have to stop it, but later in the video you see people of all ages um, going forward and rushing the stage in excitement and enthusiasm about what they're singing about. So the lyrics of that song bring us to um, the second domain under discussion, which is community. This um, is important to address in processes of healing from forced migration because there are often various levels of cohesion in groups that have experienced forced migration. Um, of course, a wave of migrants from a particular country might be seen as a single entity from the outside, um, but they can often include various groups of different languages, religions, ethnicities, cultural practices. And um, importantly, some of these differences can be associated with the very conflict from which they're fleeing in the first place and the reason they find themselves here. So the choir that we're going to see a video of next is made up of migrants uh, of various language, religion and ethnic groups who arrived in the 1990s after fleeing Bosnia-Herzegovina. And this membership includes their conductor, Slujana Hodjik. So keeping in mind that this ensemble's funding comes uh, and is primarily auspiced by an organisation which aims to serve torture and trauma survivors, and that in fact one of their core aims is to, quote, heal from trauma experiences. It's really interesting that in discussing the ways that music is used to do this, they almost exclusively talked about social and cultural outcomes of involvement. Sorry again to, to cut that off. So in that slide, you, if you can read it, um, Slajana, the conductor, talks about trying to live like they did before the war, making connections between people that share a problem through music, which is inherently beautiful. And what I'll draw your attention to is that the audience member um, in a totally separate conversation said that music reminds us that there is more to Bosnia than the war that tore their country apart. And so what we can see here is that music is not just a vehicle for restoring harmony within the community, but it also becomes a vehicle for expressing that restoration to the rest of society. And that, that relationship is something that brings us to the final domain under discussion, which is power. So in what ways can music facilitate regaining civic and political agency where 
there might be the need to obtain English language in order to just even actively participate in civic life? In what ways can music be relevant when you might have lost status, whether that be as um, losing community leadership status or whether it might be because in terms of employment, your qualifications from overseas don't count here or maybe your particular migrant status doesn't enable you to have full access to employment here? So in what ways can music help to address these things? So on a, on a small scale, the kind of ensembles that uh, we just saw a video of help to provide a context and a safe space in which navigating these practicalities of everyday life can be done collectively, can be tackled collectively, you can share resources and information. So I've seen in that sort of context the learning of English language, which can also happen through lyrics and learning English songs, um, I've seen uh, people using this as a resource to learn how to navigate the public transport system. I've seen it become a space where accessing um, your child's school community and becoming part of that and not being intimidated by that um, is made possible. And on a broader scale, um, the hip-hop artist that was uh, on the previous slide talked about becoming a leader in his community. And so being a public figure and using your music to talk about issues related to your community um, can become a way of, I guess, uh, accessing local and state government people and being noticed by them. And I, he's not the only young person who has then become uh, – used that public platform as a way to leverage – access to other resources because that public musician profile is something that is attractive to local and state governments. But of course all of this occurs within a broader context in which the figure and notion of the refugee is itself very loaded politically and is, is, is a notion around which Australian belonging um, is, you know, debated. And so even on these broad scales we can see music play a part because we don't have time for another uh, music video. But, for example, we can imagine how something like the Vietnamese Dragon Dance um, it enables you to place make and claim space as an entire community. And this is a picture from the Fairfield Showground um, iteration of it and what that shows us is a community that comes to be valued through music not as a refugee community or as a foreign community but in fact as a community that's part of Australia and contributes to the tapestry of Australian life. So I'll just uh, finish off by talking about one uh, additional point in addition to those healing aspects that are on those first three dot points, there's something else that has to be considered as to why we need to look beyond the clinical and individualistic when we talk about trauma with these communities. And that's because for some of them, and I'm not suggesting all of them, but for some of them, they're more collectivist in orientation to begin with. And so what that means is uh, where I might see myself as a distinctive individual person, for them their personhood is maybe more like a single thread in a tapestry where that whole tapestry is how they understand their sense of self. So for people that experience the world in that way, it is important and helpful to address individual clinically diagnosable trauma symptoms, but you also have to look into these other areas and factors as well. So with that, I'll return now to our original question, why music? So taken together, our case studies which look at veterans and people who have acquired um, brain injuries or spinal cord injuries and indeed with forced migrants, we can see collectively demonstrate that music works in addressing diverse experiences of trauma because of many characteristics that we've outlined. And rather than reading this list to you here, I might use it as a prompt from which we can move to discussion and open the floor to you guys. But um, with that, I think I'll just ask if you do have a question, if you can put your hand up and wait for the mic so that um, we can hear your question clearly. And uh, yeah, I'll do that. Thank you for listening. I think there might be a question at the back there. Thank you, once you've opened the door. 
Just a curiosity question with regard to a couple of other aspects of music, uh, the more passive one of being in the audience and also the one of movement as in dance, whether structured or unstructured, um, and what you might know about how those aspects can be healing. Um, well, we do know that listening to music does activate the brain in fantastic ways, um, but actively making music is just on a whole other level. Um, there's less research about dance, but uh, again, you know, there's what dance and, and making music share is that you're kind of physically synchronising with music and so it's activating auditory, visual, motor cortices. It's, it's going to be a highly integrated activity. So um, it is likely to um, promote kind of at least comparable levels of kind of neuroplasticity or at least, you know, uh, optimal brain changes. Um, as far as therapy, I'm less familiar with, with dance therapy, although I think there is a we movement do, in We music. do have a, uh, a McKenzie fellow now who just started in our department who's a dance mo uh, movement therapist, so I'm hoping that she'll stimulate some research in this area. Can I just add to what James was saying um, in terms of um, listening as well? Uh, I know that there's a, a quite a well-known study coming out of Finland where um, people who'd had a stroke were listening to music and that's all they were doing, listening. They weren't doing anything extra and they actually noted that it changed, it changed things like their cognitive abilities just through listening. Mm. I don't know if you want to add anything. Well, I guess the only thing I would add, which is just from the point of view of ethnomusicology, is that sometimes dance and music um, are not separate in that in some languages there's actually no word for each distinct thing, but they're actually all part of the one holistic thing and that's probably the only thing I'd have to add to that. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, yeah, I just have a, a question about, um, you know, running a group or setting up a group in a multicultural setting. How would you do that in a way that, like, what would differ from the way that you would set it up in that setting compared to a, a non-displaced group, say a choir? Um, yeah, sure. So the examples that we looked at there were actually driven and directed by people who came from that migrant wave themselves. And so I think certainly if you can go beyond consultation to a point where it's collaborating and partnering with them, uh, that would be probably advisable from what I've seen. It just means so much when they're actually involved in the direction and the uh, even, even designing it in the first place because no one knows better than them what they need. And even though I'm speaking about lots of different groups, each group has individual needs and individual cultural sensitivities to be aware of. So, yeah, I would say going, finding some, you know, community leaders and some people that you want to work with and, and talking to them, yeah. It's also very empowering for them too and, and when you move to, an, to a, another country and you feel disempowered, having that is a really important aspect of it. Mm. All right, can I just ask a question please? Thank you. I'm just curious, you, the research examples described were, were engaged or they were orchestrated events over a period of time with, with your recognisable outcomes. Have you done any work followed up six months later or 12 months later to see whether the outcomes have actually been sustained on the way through because I've got some, we've had some personal experience with ABI injured patients and um, when they're actually involved in the, in, the, in the activity of participating in a program, they're incredibly enthusiastic and motivated and then later on the motivation kind of fades away and we kind of revert back to a, almost the same sort of state. Maybe, maybe there is an improvement, we're not measuring that, but I'm just curious if, if you've done, if we, done follow-up. We are actually. Um, we're doing a six-month follow-up on all of our participants, but we just don't, because we're still in the middle of it, we don't have that data to share with you as yet. Uh, and in fact, we're holding off on a publication at the moment because we're just waiting for that six-month data uh, to come in. Um, but from the interviews, that, and even from that story that I read, you know, 
they're still it's still important to them. The songs that they wrote are still important to them, and it still has meaning uh, well after the therapy is finished. To the point where they felt that particular person, and that's not the only one. I had a couple of other ones that I didn't have time to share. Um, it, it's clear that 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 the effect it's had on them is long is long lasting. Mm. Uh, sorry. Um, I'm just curious with respect to um, sorry I'm over here <laughs> with respect to the the songwriting program with um, traumatic brain injury patients are they musical prior to this are they being are they leading the the songwriting how is the music created how much involvement do they have in the actual music as opposed to the lyrics and things like that they have a lot of involvement um, they don't necessarily create the music themselves because most of them are non-musical or, ha- or at least identify as being non-musical. Um, and, but I think um, what's really important is that they describe how they want it to sound. And even though they can't necessarily, um, you know, write a manuscript of any kind, they can say, oh, well, I want the melody to be like this, I want the effect to be like this. And, and actually that shaping of that music as in the example that I played, is a really critical part of really expressing the emotion. So the lyrics say one thing, but the music adds the complexity to, to um, what they're expressing. And, um, and we use things like GarageBand um, where they, on an iPad where they can actually explore different um, genres of music, different rhythms, different accompanying, accompanying styles. Sometimes some of the songs are unaccompanied. Um, sometimes they're just on acoustic instruments. They're not always um, produced in the way that um, the song we had I um, shared with you here is. But they definitely have an, a, a really important active role in creating the music. And that's really important because from from previous research that I've done, we know that when people are involved in making making the music, creating the music, that they are much more engaged with it and committed to it. So it has more meaning for them because it's really theirs, becomes theirs. On a lighter note, um, my question is a little bit maybe superficial in comparison to the depth of what you've been talking about. Um... I don't know how to put this without revealing too much about myself. Um, (laughs) I have suffered... I'm not feeling sorry for myself either. I've suffered a lot of depression due to various things. I am musical and I have reached quite a a high level. Um, But what I've found is... Look, I really want to engage back into it, but I'm finding it so difficult to share it with anyone and it's really upsetting me and making me more depressed because I cannot find anywhere, anybody, anything suitable for me that will enable me to get back into it because I love it so much, especially classical, but it's not confined to classical. I love all types of music Um, and I've been learning for many years as a child and then later on. Um, I've taught a bit of music. Um, So really that's what my main... Actually, that's why I came along tonight. (laughs) Because really I'm at a loss. I have tried and tried to join various groups, but they just don't work for some reason. I, you know, all I want is to be able to share, to share my part in the music. I don't know what it is. And and, And as I'm not engaging in it, I'm getting more and more away from it, whereas I love it. And it's not making any sense to me. I've got a lovely piano and it's sitting there open with the white keys gleaming at me and do you think I will go there? I did the other night but it's got to go further and I know that because it's causing me to lose some of my identity. I've regained some of my identity because now I'm back where I was teaching and... That is another part of my identity and I need help. 
I've got my therapist hat on now, not my researcher I hat really on. I really need and, help. And, and I I, I'd like to ask you a million questions in response to that, but I don't know that this is the right forum for it. We might, it might be good to take something like this offline. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And and I, I think we can all appreciate, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, it, it is there are barriers to participating in music in this country and, and it can be difficult to find meaningful engagement with music um, but but there are groups out there and I think I, I agree with Felicity I think it's something that we could talk about you know off air as it were and see if we can't sort of troubleshoot that and and find you some some ways of connecting with music in your community um, this is addressed to the gentleman I've forgotten your name James James uh, I actually work for an aged care facility Vasey RSL care and hence I work for my clients are all um, ex-vets or in the vet community um, I'm wondering if you have an interest in extending your um, <laughs> extending your research beyond the RSL and coming to visit us, even with your, your clients playing drums, uh, specifically though for dementia, which of course is um, fleeting as far as you get the, they get the pleasure while it's happening. It doesn't matter if they don't remember. Um, we've actually started a program called Music and Memory and that was um, instigated, the, the catalyst for that was the documentary Alive Inside, inside. Yeah. and yeah. we are just going so well with it. Mm. Um, we've had something like 70 iPods and headphones donated to us. Yeah. And um, if you'd like to speak later to me too, I'm wondering if you'd... <laughs> I would. And, if, <laughs> and would if you like are... to come and play for us? <laughs> In, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that comment. Uh, and just in case any of, of the audience aren't familiar with Alive Inside, um, I highly recommend it. It's, a, it's the most amazing story. Uh, if you don't shed multiple tears, uh, I'd be very surprised. Um, th the power of music to, to awaken um, some people with serious dementia, uh, it's just extraordinary to watch. There are some snippets on YouTube and the documentary is, I think the whole thing's probably on YouTube and it's, um, it's really brilliant. And, and, and so this, this program that, that the documentary is about has actually, is proliferating kind of around the world really. Um, but yes, indeed, I'd be happy to talk to you and um, we are actually working with uh, drumming groups in, in non-veteran um, communities and, and it's got many possibilities. And I should also just add that um, James and I both sit on the Rewire board and the Rewire board have recently uh, generated some funds and they are um, providing um, some music therapy services in Vasey House in Bandura and also at Sir William Hall um, as well. So it's, it is happening. So you, you, you need to see us. <laughs> <laughs> May I grab your attention on the right slash behind you just over here? Hello. <laughs> um, I just had a question regarding, I guess you'd call it a control group for these studies. You know, I noticed that there was a standard care group that Felicity talked about, but I'm just curious about whether there are any comparative studies and this is coming from someone who's a music therapist, so I wholly believe that the music is important. But comparing the um, music as an intervention to verbal therapies, counselling or psychology, because I have been involved in studies where there was a live music intervention and then the control group was just spending time with the people. We found there was a significant effect in that as well because the patients appreciated that interpersonal time. Just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Um, that's a really good question and that's why it's important to be very um, cautious in how you set up control groups. Um, in our study, we we had participants do, um, it was kind of a randomised crossover design, which means you, we started one group doing um, the drumming program and, and the other group did a, a sort of an art therapy program. Um, one of the reasons being, as you rightly mentioned, social interaction is, is kind of therapeutic in and of itself. Um, so we wanted to come up with uh, a similarly creative activity that had similar levels of social interaction and, um, you know, facilitator uh, interaction as well. Um, and so that we felt like that was a very comparable comparison. Really what's the, the only difference was that, you know, one of the creative processes had a tempo 
um, if you like. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sort of oversimplifying it. But, but yes, that, that's a very important point. And comparing, uh, um, you know, an intervention like this with talking therapy, traditional talking therapy, would be hopefully one of our next steps too. And I think the other thing that makes it uh, complex is that, of course, we have to take into account natural recovery as well. So that that makes it complicated as well. It just adds another level of complexity to it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are actually out of time. Um, but please join me in thanking our panellists today, our speakers. Thank you.